Hi, it's Alan, and today I'd like to share an interview I did a few months ago with Dr. Carrie Brown. Carrie is the head of the master's program in social journalism at the City University of New York, but I've actually followed her for years on Twitter back when she was a professor of journalism at the University of Memphis. Now, Carrie is one of those people who not only has interesting things to say about the future of journalism, but who also has always struck me as a really good soul, which is not always the impression you get of everybody that you meet on Twitter. Anyway, I called Carrie up because I'd read an essay called Social Journalism Comes to Life, written by Jeff Jarvis, who also happens to be Carrie's boss. And in the piece, Jeff quotes a woman by the name of Magdala Mascal. I hope I'm pronouncing her name properly. And Magdala once was one of Carrie's students. And the quote in that story from Magdala was, journalism doesn't have to be a story. Journalism doesn't have to be a story. And this caught my eye, of course, because storytelling has consumed so much of journalism. And my concerns about storytelling and journalism is obviously one of my obsessions here at Towers of Babel. So what exactly is Mechdella talking about? And is Carrie's social journalism program taking aim at reporters who now see themselves as storytellers? Um, so those are the questions I wanted to ask of Carrie, which I will ask. But first, I want to play a short clip for you of Carrie's boss, Jeff Jarvis, explaining uh, exactly what their social journalism program at the City University is all about. So here's Jeff Jarvis. At CUNY's J School, we started a new degree, the world's first in social journalism, because we want to turn journalism upside down and on its head. Rather than starting with the content we make, we start with the communities we serve. And the journalists in social journalism really learn how to go out and identify a community, listen to that community, understand its needs, and then bring the tools of journalism to help that community meet its needs. That's a different way to look at journalism. And we think that's the future, not only of journalism itself on the internet, but also of the business of journalism. This is what's gonna support us in the future. So the pioneering students who come to this program take two courses in journalism, reporting and writing, two in data, which is critical today, two in the tools of journalism, and two around the kind of landscape and ethics of journalism. And then they do a practicum in a community that they choose, identifying that community, understanding that community's needs, bringing the tools of journalism to that community. And we have a wide range of communities, from people who suffer accidents in New York, to soccer fans, to social journalists themselves. There's a wide variety that students do. And yes, you learn all the tools of social media. Certainly, you learn how to maximize the benefit of Twitter and Facebook. You learn the tools to listen to people in new ways. You learn how to analyze the data. But more than anything else, I think, you learn a new ethic of journalism, which is that we are the servants of the public. We have to start with that public, understand their needs, and serve those needs. And that's the kind of journalism we want to make here at CUNY. So I hope you consider coming to join us. So to put this another way, the central question for social journalists is not what's the story, but instead the question is what does the community need, which is not always the animating question for lots of journalists. 
So now here's Carrie Brown explaining what it means to say journalism doesn't have to be a story. Here's Carrie. Well, what that means is that sometimes the information that journalists report and uncover can be delivered to people in multiple ways. And we're just really trying to get out of having very rigid black and white mindsets as part of this program. That's one of the most important things that we try to do. I mean, of course, sometimes a story is appropriate and and it's good. You know, we're not anti-story by any means. But but at the same time, there's so many other creative ways that we can potentially deliver information, especially if we've really been listening to a community and we kind of understand the ways that news maybe fits better into their daily lives. So we've had students do things like theater productions. Um, we've had students create bots that people can interact with in order to get specific information around a topic. We've had students create sort of event series um, and art. So just kind of all these different mechanisms that, you know, you can bring journalistic skill sets to, but they aren't, they don't necessarily look the way that we traditionally think about journalism looking. Right, right. You know, I once asked Jay Rosen on Twitter, you know, how he would define journalism's theory of change. Mm. And, he, and he quoted this journalist that we were, you know, he was tweeting about at the time. And the definition that, that Jay quoted was, um, if we provide independent fact-based reporting, citizens will make informed choices and make our country better as night would follow day. That's the mm -hmm. way things are supposed to work. That was the, the journalist mm. that Jay was quoting. What is journal? Jur First of all, do you think that's a, a fair assessment of what journalism's theory of change is? And second, what is j social journalism's theory of change, if it's any different? Yeah, I think that I think that's really that's an interesting way of, of putting it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think journalists do, you know, historically tend to see kind of their their primary role as just putting it out there and not really thinking a whole lot about the more specific mechanisms beyond which how that kind of information um, can affect change. Whereas, you know, social journalists, I think, are much more active in in really thinking about how how can we really have an impact? Sure, we, we do need to bring this problem or this issue to light. But, you know, what information do people also need to make informed decisions and solve the problem? Or how can we collaborate with people who are already illuminating or solving this problem in some way and kind of amplify our work together. So I think we're trying to take the basic premises of what journalism could be and then kind of expanding on those and, and being a little bit more active or deliberate in, in kind of the ways that we're sort of pursuing change in society. Right. Well, you know, I've become a little bit obsessed with the work of the psychologist Daniel Kahneman and sort of the idea of confirmation bias generally. So Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for Economics, and his work focused mostly on the way people, you know, make decisions under uncertainty mm -hmm. and how they reach a decision. And his uh, research upended economics in a big way, mainly because he, you know, the conclusion is we're not as rational as we think we are. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't evaluate facts, whether or not they're, 
you know, facts presented in a story in the newspaper, or it's a data visualization, or it's a public forum, it doesn't really matter. But we don't evaluate facts to reach a conclusion, we already have a conclusion. And then we go around looking for facts to backfill and support pretty much what we already believe in. Right, yeah. Right. I, I just, I, the thing that I, I've, I've thought a lot about over the last couple of years is, you know, does the fact that we're not especially rational, that we just use facts to buttress our existing worldviews, does that affect, you know, what you know of journalism? Does it affect journalism and does it affect social journalism? Mm -hmm. People are not interacting with the facts the way that, you know, we journalists have long thought they do. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love his work too. And I think that is a really tricky problem for journalists, both social or otherwise. And, and I don't think there are any kind of easy solutions for it. But, you know, I do think I'm really fond of, uh, there was a piece, Solutions Journalism Network published it, I forget the author, on complicating the narratives. So I mean, because I think that sort of gets at this idea of, if we want to get people to really consider the facts rather than just kind of picking the ones that fit their predetermined conclusions, then we have to kind of complicate their way of seeing the world or, or surprise them in some way or try to take them out of that paradigm a little bit. Or maybe in social journalism, we might try to host a conversation rather than just sort of transmitting information at people. Could we have the kind of conversation where people are more motivated to maybe consider new facts or new perspectives because of the way you've kind of designed, you know, the conversation. I mean, learning from things like conflict resolution and psychology and like other fields that sort of, you know, understand how people can relate to each other and, and new pieces of information. And I don't think any of that is is very simple or linear, but I, but I do think just sort of keeping doing exactly what we're doing in journalism is clearly not, like it's not enough, it's not working. So what are some of the other more creative approaches that we can take that may sort of kind of disrupt those those predetermined conclusions a little bit? I think that's what's really interesting. Yeah. The, you know, this going back to the quote I started with about journalism doesn't have to be a story. And I know there's all, you know, story means a lot of different things to different people. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of different kinds of journalism. But I've been fascinated by sort of the way that journalists sort of have slowly merged into becoming storytellers. That's kind of the way it's yeah. frequently, frequently framed. And one of the reasons I think that that's happened is that if you just lay facts on people, what are they going to do with it? It's just information. But story is the device that we use right. to, cre to create meaning, right? Meaning is the thing that comes out of this fact tied to this fact tied to this character in this setting. And then the following things happen and you go, oh, mm -hmm. I see. There's something meaningful there. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether or not if, if social journalism kind of backs off and says, well, it doesn't have to be about a story. It could be about a, a pie chart or a conversation or something. Mm -hmm. Does social journalism aspire to again, to lack of a better word, you know, to create meaning mm -hmm. for a community or a group of people? Or is that just sort of beyond your purview? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think in some cases it can, but it but it just depends. I think what's more dangerous is when we just sort of see like storytelling as you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, right? Like you're just going to kind of automatically 
defer to that no matter what. And some of that can be as much about the journalist's ego or the way the journalist sees their identity as it does, you know, whether or not that storytelling is actually serving someone. So, I mean, I think in some cases, um, there's some really interesting writing out there about thinking about kind of the hierarchy of needs in an information sense. And, you know, in some cases, there, there are pieces of information that are extremely actionable and extremely relevant for people in a community, whether they're in a story format or not. Information about, you know, say your landlord law in your specific state or the quality of the water in your block or whatever it is, you know, I mean, I think journalists sometimes underestimate just how much of like that kind of stuff can really change people's lives. But, but I mean, I do think there still is like, there definitely is still a place for storytelling to create meaning. I mean, I I wouldn't cut that out completely because I do think stories are powerful. I mean, that's why they've been so important since, you know, I mean, oral traditions going way back in, in human history. So, I mean, I think they do have a place for that, but storytelling can also be, it can also be dangerous. I mean, it, depending on what kinds of assumptions that you're bringing with you when you're creating one. And sometimes they can create an overarching narrative that really limits the kinds of, of other ways of thinking. So I think it's not that storytelling is bad, but just that we could complicate that a little bit and really think about what we're doing, either consciously or unconsciously, and what that means. And if, if in some cases there's better ways of getting information to people. Right. You know, a lot of what I've seen you talk about and write about you, you use the word sharing a lot, a lot, mm-hmm. of, you know, a lot of what social journalism is about kind of being present with the people that you're, you're covering mm-hmm. and, and sharing. And for a lot of journalists, sharing was almost kind of a, a device that you'd use, you'd want someone to open up to you. So you'd yeah. sit down and say, well, you know, I remember my mother, and then you tell them this very <laughs> intimate story that's going no further than, yeah. than them just to get them to say, oh, well, if he's playing that card, I've got to be open as well. And they come back with it and your tape recorder's running. And that's what you're there for was that, you know, was that material. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe I was a horrible journalist and nobody else does that, but I don't think that's the case. Yeah. Why, why, why is that different in social journalism? I, I go yeah. in to share. It still feels like, it felt like a manipulation at the time when I did it. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder why is it different in a social journalism context? Yeah. I mean, I think that's definitely a a danger for sure, but I think we, we talk a lot about sort of, uh, you know, sharing in, uh, in authentic and genuine kind of way. And often people can kind of pick that up. Um, I mean, certainly you can, you can definitely use sharing as in a, you know, manipulative way to get people to talk to you. I mean, I think that's certainly true, but it's also true that as journalists are trying to establish trust, particularly with communities that maybe had been harmed in some way by journalism in the past, I mean, sometimes that starts by also being, you know, a little bit vulnerable yourself, you know, explaining something about yourself and your motivations or the processes that you use. You know, so I mean, I I think that's another one of those things where it it certainly can be used in dangerous ways, but we're really trying to kind of cultivate more of kind of that relational or empathetic um, kinds of journalism that are a little bit less transactional so that that kind of sharing isn't, you know, it's not done just in the sense of I really want to get this one awesome quote from you. It's done in the sense of we're going to try to co-create something here together. And this sharing is kind of part of what right. that's going to be about. But you're right. It's kind of a fine line sometimes for sure. 
I've asked myself this question many times, you know, that if someone came to me and said, Alan, we're doing a, a documentary about, uh, you know, former journalists at National Geographic or, you know, what people do after their journalism career. So we want to come in and we want to talk to you about your experience at Geographic. We'd like to look at some of your old stories. We'd like to meet your wife. And we'd really like to, you know, get to know you. And they're, they're sharing with me and I'm sharing, but they're here to do a doc and they want to be with me. They want to embed in my life right. for three weeks, right. you know, and, and basically, you know what the drill is. Yeah. And I, I, knowing what I, I probably would have made the same call 20 years ago, but I would never do such a thing. Mm -hmm. Not, not a chance. And I don't really care who it would be. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm happy to tell you why, but I'm interested in no, you knowing what you know about journalism. Mm -hmm. Would you let someone come into your life, even if they were from the New York Times or whatever, and do that kind of coverage of, of you? Hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> I hadn't really uh, thought about it too much in that particular way. I mean, I think, um, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, I probably would, although, I mean, particularly with documentary, I feel like it's intimidating, like actually being like filmed <laughs> versus right, sure. like being interviewed. So you're right about that. But, I, but I mean, I also just feel like, you know, for example, um, I live in Jersey city and I've lived there for about five years, but you know, I'm not from there. And I often sort of am really wishing that there was someone doing some social journalism for me on my community that I live in, because I find it very hard to find out what's going on, to connect to my neighbors, you know, as somebody that's a transplant and has lived in a lot of different cities, you know, I don't have the kind of roots or longstanding local knowledge that a lot of people do. So I don't know, I'd probably, I'd probably say yes anyway, just because I'm from the Midwest and I tend to be accommodating. But I mean, I feel like it's one thing if I'm just sort of the subject of a piece, but it's another thing if if that person really wanted to understand more about like what my information needs were and sort of how they could design some journalism that would actually serve those needs, I think that would be phenomenal. Like I'm always trying to convince my students to come do some work. <laughs> it's, it's a little bit far for them to travel to do it, but for them to come to do some work in New Jersey, because we need more of this kind of approach, like where I live and in my neighborhood, for sure. Right. And the, and the documentary question really is, a, it goes to the sort of the issue of when you show up to somebody and say, I'm here to tell your story. Right. Yeah. And, and if someone said that to me and said, that's why I want to be with you for three weeks in your house and follow you around, mm -hmm. I would think you're not here to tell my story. You're here to tell your story, whatever the story is. I don't know what it is. I don't know what's going to be. You may not even know what it is now, right. but you're going to figure it out later. And it has nothing to do with me. Yeah. It has to do with I'm grist for some mill for you. Right. The, the sharing piece of it, <laughs> it, it's tricky. I mean, you yeah. said as much. It, it is tricky. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think that also gets to like a lot of the rules in journalism were made for very good reasons to like protect journalists from, you know, power, right? I mean, huge corporations or government officials that would try to shut them down or, you know, whatever the case may be. But if you're doing journalism with someone that has less power, you know, and, and, and you're producing a story that ultimately could, you know, like you're saying, I mean, maybe the, the angle on it or the hook or some element of it doesn't feel very true to the subject of it. Do journalists have any responsibility to kind of go back to the subject and have that conversation or show them some of the work before it's published? And I think I think we need to be a lot more open to thinking about that, especially if it's not like we're trying to protect ourselves from like, you know, lawyers from a huge corporation saying like, 
like you can't run that. I mean, it's a very different scenario. And we, we typically are way too one size fits all with that. Right. I mean, I think we could do a lot more to kind of, I mean, not saying like let the subject edit the piece, but let the subject have some feedback and at least share with you, like, I think you get this wrong. I mean, I think we should do more of that. And it would actually make for a lot better journalism. You know, you mentioned the the power imbalance mm. between a reporter and a subject. And I, I confess when I've, when I've read about social journalism, part of me sometimes thinks about psychotherapy. A mm -hmm. lot of the language of it is very, you know, it's very intimate, it's very personal, it's about sharing, it's about a certain kind of honesty, it's a certain kind of openness. I sometimes think of it as a little bit like psychotherapy, but with a media arm attached yeah. to it. Mm -hmm. And um, I was talking to a, a buddy of mine who is a psychotherapist, and we were talking about that very thing, power imbalance mm -hmm. between the therapist and the patient. Mm -hmm. And he, and he said, you know, it's so tricky because you don't want to be passing judgment, mm -hmm. you know, on the people that you're, you're working with. But the smallest thing, the shrug of a shoulder, a sigh, a, a raised eyebrow when someone says something conveys all kinds of things, yeah. you know, that you may not intentionally want to be conveying. How do you counsel your students to basically say, pay attention to, the, to that. How, right. how do you navigate that? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is just being conscious of those kinds of power imbalances and always be thinking about them critically. I mean, that sounds too simplistic, but at the same time, there's no way to ever like 100% solve for, for those issues or just to like completely mitigate them in every single circumstance because every right. relationship is different. But I mean, it's the same with different forms of bias. You, The most dangerous things are the things that you're just not aware of or not thinking critically about and you're just blundering into. So, I mean, sure. that's what we're trying to do like over and over. Because, I mean, there's always going to be some types of power differentials in any relationship. But the best that you can do, I think, is being really conscious of what those are and thinking through the way that you're approaching it very, very deliberately. So, yeah. All right. You know, one, one of the things that I've loved about uh, your program, the stuff I've, I've read of yours and of Jeff's as well, is this acknowledgement that, you know, journalists are people and we're not mm -hmm. just these objective, you know, robots reporting facts. We have biases, we have a point of view and to be aware of them, to be pretty upfront mm -hmm. about them. And, and given that, I, I was thinking, I was just trying to come up with a hypothetical. So I was thinking, imagine you, Carrie, and your team were working at a local paper in say charlottesville you know two years ago before, mm -hmm. you know as this demonstration was coming to a head and you gather them all in the newsroom and how would a social journalism team approach an event like that i mean you've got people that are clearly supporting the removal of these confederate mm -hmm. monuments and then you've got these pro-confederate slash neo-nazi groups on the other side mm -hmm. uh how does a social journalist engage share listen uh, in a in a context like that, what would you advise a t your team? Yeah, I mean, I think those are you know some of the hardest situations for kind of any journalist. There's plenty of people that would disagree with me on this, but you know, I am perfectly fine with journalists basically stating that they have a bias against racism and that they are not going to treat it as though this is a each side has valid points type of story. I'm very comfortable with taking that kind of approach, um, even though, of course, it can be complicated and, you know, every issue is is different. 
I mean, of course, you know, I think sometimes there is value in bringing two groups together that disagree and, you know, kind of having an informed discussion on that. I mean, I think Spaceship Media and some others are doing that. But I think when someone gets so far out into that fringe in which they're basically debating people's right to exist, I don't think that then you can have a very productive discussion in, in any way. I think it just won't work on, on something that's, you know, kind of that extreme as that. Right. I got two other quick ones for you, then I'll let you go. One is so much of, I sense the way social journalism works, it works extraordinarily well at a local level. Does it scale to national journalism? What does social journalism look like at the national yeah, level? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it's it's easier and it makes more sense at the local level because a lot of this is, you know, kind of very high touch work. But at the same time, I think, I think there are ways to make it, you know, scale. I think, um, you know, ProPublica in a lot of their crowdsourced investigations, they are involving the public in, you know, meaningful ways and, and getting them to kind of participate in their investigative work, but they're doing it across a larger scale. Even the New York Times now has started using kind of a, a Harkin model in which they're collecting questions from people and then reporting out the answers. And there's there's any number of kind of smaller projects that are that are popping up um, around maybe a specific investigation or a specific story. So I think there are ways of, of doing it. It obviously looks a little bit different because your audience is so huge, you know, for something like the New York Times, you can't do an information needs assessment of every single person that that is the time. Yeah. And you can't and you can't have a conversation. You can't have a conversation with 10,000. Right. Yeah. That definitely does create, you know, some some challenging you know, situations for sure. But but I do think you can do it on a more specific scale, like within the bounds of one specific story or issue, you can do some of it. And I think it still can be effective. It's just not quite the same. Right. All right, last one, then I'll let you go. You know, a lot of social journalism seems to me to be kind of a heresy in a way of what's long been, you know, the gospel truth from the mother church. I always think about you and Jeff and, and the kinds of things yeah. you're doing is kind of the, the reformation, <laughs> you know, of, of, yeah. of journalism. And I just wonder what the pushback has been like from, you know, the mother church. I mean, you're obviously hanging out with lots of people, you know, sort of shoulder to shoulder with psychologists and therapists and, and conflict mediators. And it's a whole universe of, of collaboration um, in a way that I don't think traditional journalists really saw as their role. What's been that pushback like? What yeah. is it like being, you're part of the journalism school. Right. What's that What's that relationship? Yeah, I mean, you know, there definitely is, I mean, unsurprisingly, there's definitely some, you know, resistance there's definitely some people that see it um, as advocacy. I don't think advocacy is necessarily bad in journalism, but I also don't think that uh, what we're talking about is is necessarily inherently that all the time. Anything that's a different way of doing things is obviously a little bit threatening. So there's been some pushback here and there. There's certainly people that, you know, no matter how many times we explain it, will still say, like, I don't understand what that is, or I don't know what you mean. They just really have a hard time seeing outside of kind of storytelling and reporters making all the decisions about what's important. Like, that's basically the only way that they can see journalism. But what's been nice is, is that 
you know, over the past five years, we have seen a lot of this just spreading and more and more people kind of joining us and more and more news organizations are hiring people with these skills. And I think even some of the folks that have more traditional orientations are kind of like, okay, you know, I may not be 100% in your bandwagon, but I'm also not like completely against it anymore. Like, you know, they're like, okay, cool. (laughs) Like, I can see you did do some cool stuff with that. Um, so that's nice. Yeah, absolutely. So what what is is has there been one hurdle for you? I mean, some and you moved from like North Carolina, uh, Memphis, you, actually, yeah, close yeah. from Memphis, right? But in terms of coming to New York, they you know building mm-hmm. this program. Are there ways you thought about it? You know, five years ago, and the ways you think about it now, and you just go, "Wow, this is a hurdle that I didn't anticipate." You know, I'll, I maybe you know I'll probably get over it. But what are <laughs> things about the whole model that you've kind of you know, run up against the wall and gone, oh, I never really thought. Right. About yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that we've certainly learned, you know, along the way. And some of it is like, we're, you know, we're a very small school. So we're doing a lot of this without like a ton of staff or resources. So that's often, you know, among, you know, among the biggest challenges um, that we have, you know, I mean, I think that, um, you know, sometimes, um, I think we, you know, we, we think such big thoughts that we sometimes miss out on some of the lower hanging obvious fruits. So I've been trying to pump that up a little bit more. I mean, I think one of the simplest things our students can do is basically if they talk to a bunch of, let's say, immigrant parents living in Queens, they could develop a series of questions, go to the next school board meeting, ask those questions, you know, that were given to them basically by these immigrant parents and like do a story. That's a relatively simple, straightforward thing. I don't think we do enough of that. We do a lot of really interesting, creative stuff, but sometimes I'm like, you know, what are some of the more basic things that we can do more of that will help us sort of prove what it is that we're doing. Um, That and, of course, doing this in New York City versus Memphis. I mean, just the scale of New York, just in terms of like the number of people like that's like in Memphis, I could very easily say, oh, you want to do an engagement project. Here's where you just start with these three people and then your ball will be rolling. You're fine. Like in New York, (laughs) forget it, because it's just the scale is so massive that you know, our students, when they're just starting out and they're brand new, it's really challenging for them because there's just a lot going on that they're trying to navigate. And uh, that can be really, really hard. But um, but other than that, I think those are the big ones. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I got to say, I've been so impressed by what you guys are building. Um, I've watched some of the videos of your students and the enthusiasm and the energy they have. And, it, you know, most of all, it just feels like you're all asking the right questions. It's it's lovely to just kind of see, you know, you and Jeff and the others just stepping up and saying, you know, we think this is what's broken and we think this is a way to fix it. And I'm cheering <laughs> you on. You. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I've got some good students, too. So that's good. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for taking the time, especially during the holiday season. And um, have a great holiday. And I'll see you on Twitter. Sure. Yeah, sounds good. Take care. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, there's so much about the work that Carrie is doing that's essential to journalism, I think. And the biggest part, for me anyway, is the awareness that journalists are not objective observers of their communities, that somehow they're separated from the stories that they cover. Instead, in Carrie's telling, I think, journalists are part of the community. Or to put it another way, editorial priorities should not be established by any expert assessment of what constitutes the news. But instead, 
it should be determined by asking people in the community what it, it is that really matters to them. But to me, there's a problem with this approach. And the problem is that it turns journalism into a kind of information marketing in a way. You know, you find out what the customers need and you produce it and then you sell it back to them, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but something about this arrangement seems, I don't know, a little misguided or just wrong. It, it turns a nation into countless subsets of information consumers who have their own local needs. But beyond this local context, what's the connective tissue? What's the story or the narrative or even the information need that's going to connect 330 million people into a single nation? That's the question I keep coming back to here. Or put another way, I think social journalism has accurately diagnosed critical problems with the way journalism has been practiced for a very long time. But I still worry that social journalism doesn't offer an approach that adequately scales up to a national or an international level to meet the big challenges ahead. Anyway, thanks to Carrie Brown for her insights, her good humor, and for taking time to talk with me. And thank you for listening. If you feel all right to say yes. I said, if you feel all right, say yeah. <laughs> all right.